Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, a clockwork orange. In 1969, Kubrick faked the moon landing. Then he got stuck into his next conspiracy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 this gets right into that, that... I, well, I like to scream MK Awesome on this uh, <laughs> podcast sometimes, but uh, yes, yes, it's one of the big guns of sci-fi today. It is uh, 72's Clockwork Orange. 72 for the States, 73 for the UK. Oh. It right on the... And then it got, order. like, what, banned from the UK for quite a while. I think. Yeah, pretty pretty quickly. So, <laughs> really, like, what, 2002 for the UK. But uh, this is Matt. This is Luke. Welcome to our Sci-Fi Sanctuary. Um, we have a returning guest today. It's the man who um, has written his own library <laughs> on many subjects, including some books on the uh, weird mind control MK Autra stuff. Hello, Ken Ami. Thank you for having me. Tonight it's M. Ken Ultra. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, so as usual, we like to get a little bit into how we first got into the film. I was actually, um, so getting ready for this podcast, I read the book, I watched the movie, and I, I was like, I think it's only the second time I watched the movie. I was like, I want to read the book too. And I was like, oh, it's actually the second time I'm reading the book too. I, I didn't, you know, once I was halfway through, I was like, I've read this before. There's a lot of things I remember from here that are not in the movie. So, um, and then I did a wiki dive on the book and I didn't really, um, do it i didn't i ran out of time for the movie so i guess i'm going to be coming from the 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 hardcore book angle today i mean i watched the movie of course but uh yeah i I read a bunch of anthony versus um like essays and stuff so i'll I'll be coming from that angle luke how about you obviously i was aware of this film i think i remember the controversy when it was re-released and in my head had it like oh this must be a disgustingly violent film i don't want to watch this it sounds like a miserable experience so I actually watched it for the first time this morning, about an hour ago. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, I'm a kid who grew up in the 90s. I'm desensitized to way worse than this. So it didn't really bother me. <laughs> no, it's a weird, It's a, a, like Alex, it's a weird line between miserable and charming. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, now, Ken, I invited you, of course, uh, with uh, because of some you've written books sort of uh, going around this topic. I, I think I read one with the pop stars, which is fun. But um how did this film come into your, your view in the first place? Well, for one, um, you guys owe me big because I had forgotten what an unpleasant experience it is <laughs> to watch this movie. And I, five, I rewatched it a couple of weeks ago. And five seconds in, I was like, oh, no, what did I get myself into? Because <laughs> it is definitely unpleasant on various levels and I probably closed my eyes and fast forwarded through like a fourth or a third of this movie. <laughs> Not 
So I'll, I'll give you your money back. <laughs> no, no um, you know, well, for one, I had a much better time reading your notes. Now, that was uproariously funny to me. And in one of those notes, uh, it states, definitely does make me think back to my teenage years. And that is definitely when I watched the movie. And I read the book because uh, one of my high school teachers recommended it to me. Of course, I haven't read it since, but um, you know, one thing I, uh, it pains me to even remember this, much less admit it, but when I was a teenager, I did watch this movie with my mom. <laughs> and, I, and I just, maybe for the second time, you know, and, and I was staring at the screen like, oh yeah, I forgot that this scene is in there. And oh no, oh no, it was so shockingly uncomfortable. My, my example of that story is ridiculous. It was me, my then girlfriend, and my parents. My mom said, oh, we've got two DVDs your uncle's lent us. There's a comedy or a horror. Which one should we watch? I'm like, oh, let's watch the comedy. And it was Zach and Mary make a porno. <laughs> hey <-o. laughs> yeah, I guess Now, so. well, let me ask you this. Was this the girlfriend for whom you had a horse tattooed on you? <laughs> no, this was, the, this was the one before that. Oh. <laughs> Who... Um, <laughs> After I lost my virginity, he whispered the words Shia LaBeouf to me. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> the translation, please. Thank God for the beef. <laughs> well, I'll add to the list of things I could die without knowing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me, I do. I, I got like the Kubrick Blu-ray set. And I, I should, 2001 is one of those Blu-rays that skips now. That's annoying. Mm. But um. Yeah, I always look and I'm, you know, I see clock where I could watch that or I could watch like any of these other films. Uh, that said, I still haven't watched Barry Lyndon. So there's that. But <laughs> Now, I will say that uh, cinematographically speaking, he, you could tell effort was put into essentially every single scene to make it interesting to look at. And um, yeah, even with the um, awkward... Um, neo 60s type architecture and, and decorations of the home and all that. It's still, it, it made it at least interesting to look at it and, and it makes you engage in the scenes, of course. And the, the notes you sent also read this soundtrack has to be, by the way, if I'm getting ahead of us, just let me know. But We're all over the place. Yeah, the soundtrack has to be in the top 10 soundtracks in general. And I totally agree. Don't watch the movie. Just read the book and listen to the soundtrack because <laughs> it is just absolutely fantastic. And it, it's as far as I know, I'm not a musical historian, but as far as I know, it even contains what may be the very earliest example of what we now call auto-tune. Right, yeah, because the, the soundtrack was. Um, I, I am a bit of a music nerd. It's um, Wendy Carlos using an early, very large Moog synthesizer, and um, before this movie had done uh, an album of mostly Bach pieces called the Well Tempered Synthesizer. So I guess from that album, um, Kubrick hired her to do this one as well. So, and it's a really interesting. I do remember also in my teenage years, I was listening to the soundtrack and my mom said something to the likes of, if they just make it electronic, then kids will listen to classical music. <laughs> yep. And it, it does have, um, so someone's singing opera in one of the, basically opera, in one of the uh, soundtrack pieces. And it is what we call auto-tune. So it's extremely cutting edge in, in that sense. Yeah, I haven't watched a movie of her. 15 years but the um the the soundtrack has been on my ipad for um 
yeah. quite a while and regularly gets listened to. So, <laughs> and some of it is just a straight up orchestra playing classical music with nothing changed. And but some of it is very electronic and very interesting. If you listen to the soundtrack album, the entire thing's electronic. So it's, it's oh really? Yeah. So I, I am kind of cross. I mean, what's in the movie is fantastic, but if you do happen to listen to the the album, it's all synthesized and is well. They, cool. Maybe the the standard non-electronic Beethoven he listens to wasn't recorded especially. Right, before. right. It's just some licensed tracks they had. Yeah. I don't In know. fact, uh, a couple, maybe last year or the year before, I did go on YouTube to uh, to look for it, and it's definitely it's there for all to hear. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know what this says about me, but the last two nights after watching this, I did go to sleep listening to the Sixth Symphony and then the third last night. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the, un, the unsynthesized ones. <laughs> But uh, I, I guess we do want to plow a little deeper into this film. Uh, so, Luke, you want to give us the rundown, which I think is relatively bereft of the, the slang. I, there's some slang, but that's <laughs> also just how Brits talk. So. <laughs> very well, very well. large and his droogs like a bit of milk, a bit of Beethoven, a bit of the old rape and ultraviolence. Alex's parole officer warns him that getting back on the straight and narrow, but everything's pure horror show, mate. Alex's droogs aren't happy with small time crime. They want some big, big money. They kill and rob a cat lady and Alex finds himself banged up for 14 years. Two years in and he's signed up for some rehabilitative treatment. Soon he's sick at the thought of sex and violence. Alex returns to a world that doesn't want him anymore no longer able to fight or shag. He gets battered by bums and clobbered by coppers before accidentally finding himself the guest of a prior victim. After attempting suicide, our friend and narrator is approached by the Minister of the Interior with a, with a request for propagandizing friendship. As Beethoven's ninth plays, Alex realizes he's cured all right. If I may, I did want to ask a couple of UK bloats, what is this slang horror show? Because I was under the impression it referred to something bad, but in the movie, they they seem to use it as something good. Like, oh, that was real horror show. That was excellent. You know? Well, I mean, that often happens, right? A word will mean bad and then slowly become, it means good. Granted, the, granted. Literally the word bad in the 80s meant good. <laughs> yeah. That's bad, yeah. That's sick, that's wicked, that's filthy. It, whatever word you introduce to mean bad, 
will slowly turn into me and Kurt. So I think that's what they were going for. I think we did that in the States where they took it a touch. Maybe you guys take it a touch farther. Well, it's also the fact that we just constantly insult each other a lot and that's how we show friendships. So yeah. I know we are weird that way. When I went up to New England or, or Maine and they were using, like, you're wicked smart, that one threw me off a little bit. Right, wicked. Or in my day, it was killer. Killer, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's called uh, calling good evil and evil good. <laughs> so... This is an uncomfortable movie, but it really only has one actor, and it's probably one of the better film performances in general, I would say. Now, I will say, I, I did want to, throughout the entire movie, I, I fantasized about kidnapping Alex and giving him a proper haircut. <laughs> <laughs> it was particularly yeah. annoying when he goes back home and there's that other guy living with his family. It's the exact same haircut. <laughs> <laughs> it's found a replacement. <laughs> Did I, I should, How did you find two of that haircut? <laughs> One of the reasons I probably never watched this movie until I was about 30 years old in the first place is when I was growing up, people would always say my dad looked like Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he had shorter hair, but I, was like, I think I probably would avoid it. And then they're kind of right. So, <laughs> The other thought I had every time I was looking at him, he looks like the guy... Um, the guy who played Quicksilver in the X-Men. Which one? No, the, the oh, X-Men, X-Men. X-Men. Yeah, Evan, yeah. Evan Peters. Evan Peters. Yeah, he just, I don't know, they just have a look. That weird mouth, I think, is what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if they ever do a, a remake now, they got to get him in there. Because, uh, th- anyway, when you when we were doing Star Trek Generations, and I was, like, flipping out over Dr. Storms, because it's Malcolm McDowell, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this this is his uh, signature card here, pretty well, he, much. You'll notice in my... Um, run through the plot. I couldn't remember any other characters' names. Nobody matters. Yeah, he's the only one. Well, that's kind of the point, right? Because in his world, he is the only one who matters. Yeah, yeah. Everyone else, even the doctors just kind of drift through. Yeah. Um, and it's the same in the book because he uh, it's first person narrated in the book. So right. it's like Alex's ego trip, more or less. Because I think even his mum and dad, they even refer to each other as mum and dad rather than using names. Oh, he's oh. what? P&M. P&M. Which yeah. <laughs> <It> sounds horrible. <laughs> Uh, now, if I remember correctly, in the book, he's 14 years old, right? 14 or 15, yeah. Which is, okay, so for one, okay, um, I, I didn't, I don't recall the book very well, but the movie doesn't have a beginning, and it actually doesn't have an ending. It's more like a middle, mm. right? We, we meet Alex, and he is who he is. He's a 14-year-old, which makes it all the more shocking, who has a gang, and he's into... Um, just random acts of violence, robbery, and uh, the old in-out, in-out uh, rape at 14. Okay, so the movie, we find him like that, and basically he goes back to that stage. I don't want to ruin the end right now, but it's just a middle. See what I mean? Yeah, I'm thinking about the 14. I, I just recently read a book. I, I believe it's Diane Lake, who is the youngest member of the Manson family. And, and while she is one that did not actually kill anyone, she actually was the witness that had the rest of them put in prison in the end. But she was got involved with Manson at 14 and was definitely up to, you know, Manson level mm. hijinks at that point. So I, I guess 14 is not necessarily too young for this sort of stuff. The, um, the thing that surprised me in the film version is I think they cast someone a bit too old because when his mum comes in and tells him to go to school, <laughs> and I was looking at him, but this is a 30-year-old man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I can definitely understand why. I mean, this film was shocking as it was. Enough, yeah. If he'd been a fourteen-year-old yeah. actor in that role, then yeah, it would have been ridiculous. Oh God, um, the the ladies he uh, the girls he brings back from the uh, music store in the book are ten. 
Like, wow. can, you cannot put that in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also, the, I, this was on the, just from the Wikipedia. It's not consensual in the book, right? Oh, yeah, like drugs. In, yeah, in yeah. the film, it just came across they were just having a yeah, lark. Yeah, it, it almost like, well, he's still being dirty, but at least it's, you know, good, clean fun in a way. Yeah. But yeah, in the book, it's even that's, you know, just horrible. So. <laughs> And so uh, the the icing on the cake is that it begins with them in the Malaco milk bar, right? Mm. And uh, so the notes say milk plus means milk extra means extra milk. Then, <laughs> well, not exactly. They would go to this bar that specialized in serving milk plus milk plus any of uh, hallucinogenic of your choosing. Really. <laughs> so these guys, these teens, would. Take hallucinogenics and then go off and perform their deeds. And I, I actually knew some guys that were very much like this in high school, uh, skinheads and punk rockers. Who, who I, uh, in full disclosure, I was never with them at the time, but they would regale me with tales of. Uh, they weren't necessarily beating up people, but they would do uh, random destructive acts on people's properties. Let's put it that way, just because. Yeah, me just because of nihilism or what have you. We were watching a safety video about not messing with electronics, which I had to watch back when I was in high school. And there's a scene in it where the, the young lads are just, they go into an abandoned building and start smashing things up. And Matt was laughing at it like, that's ridiculous. I'm like, yeah, that's what British kids do. <laughs> <laughs> just whenever I'm walking around Japan and there's like beautiful statues and everywhere. I think, wow, it's amazing that none of these have a knob to them. <laughs> They're not holding beer cans. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because... Um, when my cousin came to visit the States from Argentina, he was looking around at uh, like the street medians, you know what I mean? Um, or just for decoration, he saw that there were huge river rocks just stacked up. And he said, oh, they would never do that in Argentina because they'd be afraid when people got angry, they would start using them as weapons and to destroy stuff. <laughs> so it is, it's interesting. That segues actually into, I, 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 I can tell because it wasn't me. <laughs> I, I think I have one teenage clockwork story. Some guy I only met once or twice named Luke, actually. And um, we're in a car. We're just driving along. And the dude suddenly just, maybe it had some milk plus before. I don't know. He suddenly decides <laughs> to just lob a rock out of the car at someone. We're like, what the hell did you do that for? You know, we, we, we flipped out as a normal person should. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I guess he, he thought we were his new droogs or something. I don't know. Yeah. So, anyway, we did not hang out with that particular Luke again. Actually, let me correct myself. It was the Caroba milk bar that served Malaco. There we go, right? yeah. The, the cow milk bar serving milk, yeah. Yeah, the slang that was not um, like, you know, actual British slang. This one was uh, Russian slang. Um, Nad, Nadsat was uh, what I guess Burgess called it. And... Um, because he had he had actually taken a trip in '59 or '60 to Soviet Russia and you know got a little bit of language and um, I, one of the essays I read he was like oh I brainwashed you if you've read the book because by the end of this book you know some Russian <laughs> and I was disappointed because like I don't remember half of the words which yeah. I'm bad at languages my Japanese still sucks so it made me a little depressed I was like I wish I did know some Russian since I read your book <laughs> and that does make the movie a little more interesting the to watch is picking up on all these strange things that he's saying. <laughs> it's such a difficult thing to get right when in sci-fi or fantasy you want to throw in your own slang. Yeah. Because when it's not done well, it can sound so crap. 
Whereas here, because I think because they lean into it so hard, and also just because Malcolm McDowell is sort of cheeky and charming in the way he does it, it works. Yeah, like um, the idea one was if he thought he thought if he used Russian, it would be like timeless. Mm. And also, it's nineteen sixty one or two when he wrote the book. So I think sixty one. So it's like height of the Cold War. Yeah, and he's like mm. combining English and Russian. So that was kind of a bit of a statement too, apparently. <laughs> Now, from the very beginning of the movie, we noticed that the bar is decorated with um, essentially mannequins of uh, naked women. And even the tables, a table is basically a woman on all fours. And that is definitely, I get, okay, I, I can't say what they meant by that, but that is definitely an aspect of a, sort of a typical satanic ritual, which they will use naked women as altars. And it's in everyone's houses, even P and M have like, not straight up pornographic pictures, but they definitely have some racy paintings on their walls. Yeah, there was no one, no, there was no house they went into which wasn't decorated like some kind of perfect. Yeah. What, <laughs> yeah, what the really cat lady definitely. Film is, I've never seen a film which is so obsessed with sex without being remotely sexy. I feel like there's probably enough. I mean, I don't disagree with you. I'm thinking there's got to be another film that fits that, um, that, that obsessed with sex and not remotely sexy. But um, yes, this is one of them. Yeah. Sure. Well, okay, the, this is the first on this podcast, let's say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good, in this case, that's a good thing because yeah, the point true. of it was that it was so horrendous what he was doing. So making it sexy would be just that much more horrible. Luke, second, high life. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, if you don't know that one, you probably don't need to. But uh, that's one that also had a lot of like sexy stuff that was very not sexy. <laughs> yeah, but um, I, I guess we're into design now. Um, let's look at. I, I will start with the non-pornographic parts. I definitely want to shop in that record store. That's for sure. So the bright colors and stuff. That's like the, that. That record store does look like the inside of my mind. I think. <laughs> <laughs> That one looked it, kind of like the Bill and Ted one future. Yeah. <laughs> and it seemed to be set up in a circle so that you could probably just do laps and keep noticing new things every time you go around and round and round. For a record store, that sounds fantastic for me. <laughs> there's um there's this shop in the UK, I don't know if you had them in the States called Lidl. I don't it's a believe German that. supermarket. Um but it's laid out. You have to do this big loop mm. around all their weekly special offers before you can get to the middle bit where you do your actual shopping. Well, it's like so an it Ikea thing. Yeah, it forces you to find like a bunch of ridiculous bargains you don't need before you get to what you actually came in. Right. <laughs> so many and, coats and, and shoes and stupid things. <laughs> and in the note, you noted something about the coat he was wearing, which was quite stylish. I'll give him that. Oh, yeah, I'd definitely like to play in a psychedelic band wearing that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, for absolutely abhorrent guys, his gang were very cool. Well, the card pieces were a little, little um, questionable. I'd rock a card piece. 
It's 2021, Matt. Go with it. But I did think, because uh, they got that, and then later when they're videoing the films this way, they have the other Droog gang, and they're all dressed in white. I'm like, why would you and your Droogs dress in white if you're going to be up for ultraviolence? <laughs> That's a lot of laundering. Well, yeah, they spill the, so much milk down themselves. <laughs> those, um, let's call them hardened prostudniks. Oh, we had a, a break in. The would story. seem to be dressed just like his own gang. Yeah, the only difference was they had the but, pirate hats instead of the bowler hats. And then, and then you'll recall that um, when they, I'll say, inadvertently rescue the woman from being raped so they could fight the gang, that other gang is dressed in military fatigues and Nazi uniforms. Yeah, and oh, later when he's in prison, he's got the red armband. I was like, that's kind of weird. It's, that's not like a... No, that definitely wouldn't be a British thing. <laughs> well, I mean, apart from we did have... So now you guys said... Uh, yeah, so basically they, they wore all white with the, the... I mean, it looked like to be the codpiece, which you generally would wear inside your pants, right? <laughs> they, they would wear them outside. <laughs> and then um, it made me think of um, maybe a very ver early version of what would become... I'm not directly correlating this, I'm just saying... Um, the Cenobites in Hellraiser, right? Because they're wearing these all-white uniforms with uh, what I know you British chaps call uh, braces. Oh, suspenders. Uh, yeah. In America, they call suspenders. But they have, if you notice, like Alex has um, eyeballs on his shirt sleeves and then like an open wound gashed on his uh, braces. And so they all have these uh, appendages of something um, like a body being cut open or something to do with blood or a body part or something like that. And that's something I definitely- So I mean, you said- uh, Yeah, I never noticed that till this viewing, I mean, being my second, but the, obviously that style, that fashion style has become somewhat, you know, certain people are into it now, right? So. I, I was like, oh, I definitely recognize yeah, the eyeball said, thing. I just didn't realize it was on his sleeve in this movie. And then, um, yeah, you know, uh, so whoever wrote the notes wrote ultra ultra laundry. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's me. <laughs> yeah, that, that keeps that. Yeah, then they're filming like three sessions. And then Alex wears on one single eye, he wears uh, fake eyelashes. And that's definitely a I mean, it'd be among the goth crowd. <laughs> well, that's one of yeah. the iconic looks of this film is that yeah yeah the fact, one all seeing eye in the pyramid usually appears in the movie posters a few years ago my, uh, my wife and i were at um it's called kind's home in japan it's kind of like a home somewhere between a home depot and a target i guess but uh she was going to test makeup she's like, i want to see what this looks like but don't worry it'll come right off and she puts it on oh it doesn't come off so i had to go around looking all day like alex because i had, like mascara on one eye <laughs> Yeah, I'd always let my sister do stuff like that. <laughs> but this was completely by accident. <laughs> but uh, it's, okay, in Japan, it's not, Clockwork Orange isn't that well known, but you've seen multiple students wearing Clockwork Orange t-shirts, haven't you? Yes. <laughs> the uh, One of oh, the wow. clothing chains, they just, they recently brought out a line of all these classic sci-fi movie t-shirts. It's Clockwork Orange, 2001, Alien Predator. And all the kids are wearing them, but none of them have seen these films. <laughs> so multiple times I've tried to start a conversation like, ah, oh, cool, 2001, do you like that movie? They're like, oh, it's a movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, since uh, I like it when they got the uh, ape one, because, oh, we talked to that monkey, and then they're really confused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we interviewed him on our earlier episode, but, uh, yeah. Um, other, the design is cool. It's, it's weirdly clunky sometimes. 
like it feels is it like lived in cheap i don't know i definitely yeah it didn't feel cheap I mean, a Kubrick film would, if it does feel like that, it's definitely for a reason. Uh, The man had his resources. There's also, for me, the issue of that this seems to be a society in transition because from the beginning scenes, it appears like it's almost post-apocalyptic, right? That um, these gangs are running wild. There's no law and order. Alex's neighborhood is an absolute wreck filled with trash. Uh, but then there is an active police force and a functioning government who's looking into this thing. So it's almost like it kind of makes you wonder, uh, are they coming out of some sort of chaos or going into it or just trying to manage it or what What really is going on? I guess I'm cl- glass half empty. I was thinking they're going into it, sort of Mad Max style. <laughs> see, I, I didn't really see it as such a big issue i just saw it as like a, a crime wave yeah like gangs exist that can happen without the whole world coming down around it there's a few important things about the book I think I I should definitely bring up having read it this week um one um I thought it's interesting in the book it's made clear that when he returns to his parents like projects or whatever it's been cleaned up right Mm -hmm. like like everything's kind of nicer now um he he meets another one of his old droogs that's not a police officer now who is but he's getting married he's like an accountant again the shorthand the accountant thing right yeah um the other thing about the book is it was organized into three sections which the movie follows very closely of seven chapters each but the 21st chapter was cut for the american i did see that on the which is the version that kubrick filmed the 21st chapter has alex meeting that other droog who is um, now getting married. Alex himself is becoming 18 and decide decides himself to leave behind the violence. And I don't know. I mean, at that point, can you uh, can you be forgiven for all that violence? You know, he killed three people. In the book, he's killed three people. So, right. <laughs> so um, you know, okay. he, he does turn his back on it. But uh, yeah. So book. that that is absolutely key. That is a very important point. And I noticed in the notes it said, uh, well, okay, so we're jumping to the end. Okay, let me, okay. So basically, we have a government that is now interested in doing something about these uh, hooligans and that's what the the bulk the the bulk of the story is alex's experience with with being um made to change through a sort of technocratic way through um reprogramming and and basically what happens to him and what we find it so in the end um Okay, so oh, it's sorry, I'm I'm stumbling because I'm trying to, to keep track. <laughs> Basically, he, he goes through this uh, mind control experimentation, and I guess we could put it that way. We already referenced MK Ultra, whereby he is made to watch uh, films depicting all sorts of violence while he is on a certain pharmaceutical 
so that the result is that henceforth, if he attempts to engage in any kind of violence, um, be it physical or sexual, then he gets violently ill. So that's what's supposed to prevent him from committing those actions. Yet we find out that during the showing of these films, they were playing some of his favorite music quite accidentally, some Beethoven. So what happens is that now anytime he hears Beethoven, maybe a particular symphony, I know you, I think you said in the book, it's, it's all. Yeah, I think they made the distinction in the book, it's all music, in the film it's just the ninth, the ninth yeah. <laughs> so this uh, is very uh, aggravating to him because he is a Beethoven fan, you know, he wasn't completely without class, was he? <laughs> so at, at one point, and we, we'll throw in some more details along the way, but at one point he attempts suicide and as is being re rehabilitated in the hospital, then we have the whole scene of the government coming to him and apologizing for having done that to him. And then what you noted at the very end of your notes, which is strange Victorian wet dreams means you're cured. <laughs> because uh, after this uh, experimentation failed and he's essentially back to whatever normal might be, then we recognize he's fantasizing about, uh, well, what I just read there. And that was the point of censoring the book and cutting out the last chapter. It was supposed to say that there's really uh, no hope for these young hooligans. There's no reforming them. There's nothing that can be done and they're just gonna go right back to their old ways. Whereas in the book, yeah, he, he um, is at, a, at some kind of eatery where he recognizes, a, he looks at a woman, notices her, and is almost surprised by his own thinking, which is that he's thinking of her in terms of, wow, someday I could get married to a woman, and I'm not just thinking about the old in, out, in, out. And then he sees the man who is with this woman, who turns out to be Georgie, one of his old Drews. And so we see that basically what's happening to Alex is he's growing the H-E double hockey sticks up. And that's the way he gets cured, is he just grows out of it. He comes to his senses and he mans up, basically. That's really the end of the, the actual original book. Yeah, and we should mention Kubrick apparently did not really know of the final chapter when he was working on the movie. So, it, you know, I guess he didn't consciously make a choice, but it definitely changes the message quite a bit. Yeah. And it sounds like the uh, Burgess, the author, kind of like went back and forth on if that last chapter should be there or not. Also, this was like one of his least favorite books that he wrote, but it's the one he's known for. So as these things work. <laughs> yeah, they always do. <laughs> um, well, the core of the movie, I guess, sort of beyond the fashion icon, icon guy, say the iconography. Thank you. <laughs> Is the, uh, the, the mind melting brainwashing scene. That's sort of the core of this. That's where you're like, oh, uh, yeah. Everyone on Earth, if they haven't seen the film, they not have that image of the eyes being held open as he watches the images. Right, right. Uh, that's one of the most iconic shots in, like, cinema. So, I don't know. I guess it's easy for Alex. Easy, It's easy for you. It's easy for, for all of us to sort of be like, man, I, I, you know, I can hold my ground, you know. But then we have this wild procedure, which I guess you could not, but you feel like, oh, I, I, you know, maybe I'm up to a challenge. And Alex doesn't even know what he's in for. They don't tell him anything, right? In fact, we didn't actually describe this. He is put in a straitjacket. He's strapped down to a chair and his eyes, eyelids are held open by metallic clamps. So he cannot even look away from the film. 
Although he is doing, uh, in the last scene where he's in the chair, he's doing quite a good job of almost looking back. It made me think he, is. he was saying that it doesn't matter where he moves, like, the screen is big enough that he's always looking at it. No, I'm just saying the last shot of him. Yeah, he, did, he freaks out and turns around. Because he's so desperate to look backwards at where the doctors are to explain to them that they shouldn't be making him suffer for listening to beautiful music. That's why he's so enraged. Yeah, his, his issue with the whole thing was it's not fair to associate Beethoven with it. <laughs> Which, like, he seemed pretty on board with being cured of his violent urges. Yeah, <laughs> and um, of course, the demonstration after shows just how, while he does seem well, no, he doesn't break the program. They fix it for him, don't they? So the demonstration, you know, was pretty pretty wild. I can't imagine this having that sort of demonstration. I think the book just has him being beaten down. I don't I don't remember the uh, naked lady coming out in the book, but. Oh, yeah, because I was surprised by that one because it seemed that it it's not just violence, it's all sex he is now disgusted by. Because he wasn't, there was no violence. He, she walked up to him quite willingly and he was going to reach out and grab the boobies. Yeah. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> and yet now that has also been associated with these same feelings as his violent urges had. Yeah, I mean, did they, like, you know, forcibly neuter him as well by this? I mean, in a, effectively? Yeah, he'd basically been chemically neutered at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so just to, to fill in the audience a little bit, after the procedure, the, the scientists want to prove to the government that they were successful, so they put Alex on a stage and have someone basically bullying him. So when Alex goes to strike the man, it's shown that Alex is incapable because he gets violently ill. And the same when a woman approaches him seductively and he's reaching out to her and uh, it's a no-go. So I guess it's more like an ethical cure at that point. Well, they even right after that, the, I think it's the priest who comes in. Yeah. He says like, he, he hasn't made any moral change. He's not chosen to be better. He's still just acting out of the same self-preservation. It's just that now those instincts will lead him away from violence instead of towards it. Right. And you'll recall that the, the priest had d dissuaded him. He, the priest seemed to think that Alex was actually better off in the prison um, experiencing that which he should be deeply regretting than find him some sort of ticket out. Yeah. And then uh, they just thought I, I really noticed uh, watching this time all the uh, dry heaving sound effects they'd throw in. <laughs> Which also leads me to a, a goof in the movie, uh, which is when the when his former police droogs have him underwater, he's still making the dry heaving sounds. I I caught that as well. <laughs> like, are they just a soundtrack element then? They're not actually. Yeah, because at first I media. thought it was act when he was in his parents' house. I assumed he was making it, but then when he's you know underwater, yeah. I'm like, is he? <laughs> but what makes up for it is, as you put in the note, Billy Club sound effects are wild as well, and yeah. When every time he's struck with a billy club, um, it's a very interesting uh, echoing sound effect, like a metallic uh, electronic sound effect coming off of it. Yeah, yeah, the early 70s are a fantastic time for electronic sounds, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, the reason we've brought Canon is to discuss the, the sort of the brainwashing side of this story and the MKUltra side. But it also does ask a big question about 
like what is the purpose of our justice system is it punishment or is it rehabilitation mm. um and the, there are characters expressing opinions both ways on that all through the film yeah and i know you know 2020 america has like by far like one of the largest prison populations mm -hmm. uh, now this movie is not clearly set anywhere um part of the point is it could be london it could be moscow it could be new york it's never quite clear mm. i mean you know most of the actors are british so you got the accents but otherwise it's a relatively nebulous place well right, and as we know even in ancient greece they talked with british accents so. of course <laughs> Egyptians, all of them and um all all outer, all extraterrestrial aliens as well. Yeah, <laughs> only the bad ones. The bad ones speak with British accents. The good ones are. But right. um, so back to the prison for a second and the British accents. Uh, you talked about Alex rocking out with the man and his whitey tighties, <laughs> and uh, I was thinking about the one character. I don't know what his position was in the prison, but uh, to me it was a case of. Um, the least amount of power I've ever seen go to somebody's head is okay. that, that the man who like, he has to enunciate every syllable, right? Like he tells him, pick that up and put it down properly. You know, that guy, or he asks him, are you now, have you been a homosexual? You know, and everything he did was so uptight and he's doing the goose stepping just to bring Alex over to the therapist. Right. And they're, they're like, okay, whatever. They're obviously very nonchalant about it. He's goose stepping and doing all this stuff. And he's very, very much into the tiny amount of power that he has in that prison. He's very Monty Python in that way. And also oh, yeah. um, going back to the magical mystery tour, we had the uh, army officer, that's the Beatles movie where the army officers doing that. Is this, is this a British trope? Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. <laughs> I, you see it. Well, think of um, Pink Floyd, right? The guy in the school in the wall. Mm. Right. The, yeah. The can can't have any pudding. Can't have any pudding if you don't oh, eat your meat. Pudding if you don't eat your meat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a big trope. I mean, it's Stand still, will you? The class divide and the boarding schools and all of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, people love to convince themselves that they're better than you in the UK. <laughs> like um, the best version I've ever heard of it was a, a black comedian was saying that in the UK, because there aren't enough racial diversities, we had to invent a way to be racist to other white people. <laughs> so we created the class system. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a thing. So what the note says, uh, seems that the trauma based is the way they're, they'll mind control. And yeah, so this was definitely trauma-based mind control in the way that this person who caused a great deal of trauma was now being put through trauma to prevent him from going out and committing subsequent trauma. But um, it's definitely a form of mind control made the most famous by the uh, slew of MK Ultra programs, by the way, uh, MK I mean, MK program, MK Ultra was just one of them. There's various others, MK Naomi and MK this and MK that. But um, Ultra was the one where they would put you through traumatic experiences because what happens naturally in a person is that uh, the mind will build amnesia walls around these traumatic memories, which is what allows you to be able to go on with your life. Uh, so, for example, it's well known that after a woman gives birth, she starts losing her memory of the event because it's so traumatic and so painful that uh, 
shortly after giving birth, they're like, I am never doing this again. But then a few months go by, a few years, oh, I want another baby, you know. Mm. And, and this is why you have problems with uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, what they used to call shell shock or whatever, is that that malfunctions. And so now, uh, let's say it's a soldier comes back home where he can live peacefully, but he can't because something has gone wrong and these amnesia walls have really kind of failed to form around these traumatic memories so that they're living with them every single day and it really messes them up. So in this case, uh, he was being, again, put on pharmaceuticals and made to experience these traumas so that then when he uh, thought to com commit them again himself, he would undergo the trauma of being violently ill. And that's what was supposed to keep him from committing these acts again. And it worked well for, for what it was. <laughs> Um, of course, what happened, like you mentioned, he runs into what, who used to be his old gang, his old droogs. Two of them are now policemen, uh, which is pretty frightening. Um, and, but now he's in a case of pure self-defense, incidentally, and he can't defend himself because uh, a self-defense would imply him uh, protecting himself violently, and he can no longer even do that, right? So that's quite a pitfall. And then I think it's interesting, this is in the book and the movie that when he's in the hospital, like they did something to your head to fix it. So I, I felt like I remember from the past, like, you know, like a, like the will breaking through, which is not the case. They, you know, it's become so politically reprehensible. They did this in the first place that there's, okay, we can reverse this somehow, which they never really say what they did there. So it's like, you're out in the hospital. We did something. You're cured. Right. Well, I mean, if cartoons have taught me anything, if, if one bonk on the head can give you amnesia, another one can take it away. So, <laughs> What does lightning do? Uh, either give you superpowers or... <laughs> Bring you to a crisp. Or maybe they just they uh, peeled his eyes open again, but just showed him loads of really fun, happy videos. <laughs> people killing bad guys gloriously. <laughs> the Disneyland parade. Yep. Yeah. There, there's, yeah. <laughs> I, I've heard some people just kind of mention like you're not trauma based, but I mean, you go into Disneyland, you're in this controlled environment. I love going to Disneyland, but you know, it is kind of <laughs> just going through his dark rides and stuff can, uh, you know, definitely change your, your view a little bit. Well, yeah, Dis fun. Disneyland is designed to like make it as difficult as possible to you to feel any negative emotion. <laughs> <laughs> like, like they have the system that like they will do everything possible to move someone out of Disneyland if they think they're going to die so that no one has ever died at Disneyland and stuff like that. <laughs> so what about all the crying kids? That's an interesting one. It works for adults and maybe teenagers. It doesn't work for the real little kids. They still get grumpy. Yeah, but kids will get grumpy about anything. <laughs> <laughs> right, but then that's why, that's why you're there. Like, you feel annoyed. These kids are like, how can you be annoyed? How can you be crying? You're at Disneyland. This is designed to make you happy. <laughs> It cost me two thousand dollars to bring you here. Yeah. You will damn well enjoy it. <laughs> it is cheaper in Japan. That's nice. Mm. That is interesting because in America, I, I I used to Luke knows I'm weirdly obsessed with this stuff. So um, I just know in America they just keep jacking the price. Bump 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 bump. America stayed relatively stable. Well, like, that's why it always shocks me when one of my students tells me they go like every summer. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. oh that's like a once in a lifetime thing for us. <laughs>
But uh, yeah, this is more like like Dismal Land, right? Is that Banksy's? Name? <laughs> well, I'm talking about right. Banksy. <laughs> no, I know you don't. I, I, you know, I was kind of uh, stoking you a bit there, but uh, I do like the name Dismal Land. That's fun. <laughs> well, that's that's everything, Banksy. It's like, it's worth a. But then people talk about it like it's the highest art ever. <laughs> Speaking of dismal, one of the notes says, <laughs> I don't approve of the old ultraviolence, but that singing deserves something horrible. Because <laughs> <laughs> when they're in the... Uh, oh, they're in the milk bar. In the, chicks. In the milk bar. Oh, she right. starts singing opera. Uh, Dim, one of the gang members, makes a rude sound, and Alex instantly beats him with his. Whacks him on the thigh. He whacks him with his, yeah. And that actually is the first hint we have that this gang is not as tight as they would seem. There is uh, Alex, who is the style leader, and we end up finding out he picks on Dim quite a lot. And Georgie, uh, you know, there's Dim, Georgie, and the other one. That yeah. kid is hardly even in the picture whatsoever, right? Well, is he the one who would have been this cut character? Because there's the later on he meets one of his old gang who's gone straight. In that's the, Georgie in the book. Yeah. Oh, that's Georgie in, in the okay. book. In the book, right? Okay. So yeah, this one is just a non-entity. Yeah, yeah, but it's so yeah. anyhow we we find out Alex apparently picks on Dim a lot, and they bring it up to him. Georgie is quite adamant that that will be stopping. This is the new way. Mm. Right. And, and Alex decides to deal with it by attacking them and just and even that in the attack scene. Right. He um, he hits um, Georgie right where it counts. Uh, <laughs> and then um, so Dim goes to attack Alex and Alex gets the better of him. He ends up cutting his hand. But again, the third member, the fourth member of the gang just kind of hold it's yeah, holding back. Yeah, but anyhow, so Alex deals with it by solidifying his stance. He marks his territory. He is the alpha male of the group. He showed them. But then he's uh, able also to show them some grace. He recognizes he beat them down. Everything's as it was before. So then he um, accepts an offer that Georgie had made previously, which is Georgie had this great idea about breaking into this uh, cat lady's house because she was supposed to have be hoarding a lot of money in there. So that's how they end up um, committing a murder, which Alex claims was accidental. Right. And so that's one of the, yeah, <laughs> that's how he, he ends up in prison by um, carrying out this plan. Okay. So here was the key. He carried out this plan Georgie had the end of which was that when Alex is escaping from the house, they pummel him. So, and then they leave him behind. That's how he gets arrested. Mm. So it was basically the whole plan was to betray him as well-deserved as it was, it was to betray him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, everything you said just sounds violent, horrific, which this movie is to a, a great degree. But I read a review from 72 when the movie came out, accusing the movie of pulling its punches. Hmm. And um, here were the reasons why. Now, one, I would say a, an instant argument would be simply by filming it. You've already like taken it up a few notches. All right. But um, they mentioned um, when he beats his droogs, it's in slow motion. Yeah. Kind of takes, I mean, it's very cool cinematography. It looks great, but it takes a bit of the uh, just violent impact out of what he's actually doing. Um, the same in the, uh, when the, when the droogs uh, betray him, Jim hits him in the face of the milk bottle where he uh, whaps him with chains in the book. Okay. Again, uh, when he's having his, his way with the, the two young ladies, 
Uh, it's in fast forward, like Benny Hill style. <laughs> and in the book, he's raping 10 year old girls. So, yeah. you know, things like that. Uh, there, uh, there's a few more points. There's interesting stuff in, in the book. He murders someone in prison for uh, making a pass at him, mm. <laughs> which he, you know, they don't even, I mean, the prisoners are just like kind of like almost that goofy. Extras, yeah, yeah, they're like goofy army, army recruits here. So it, you it mean was, in the movie? It, yeah, yeah. In the book. Yeah, the only, yeah. Character. The only scene in the movie that would uh, make you concerned about being in that prison is when they're listening to the sermon and one of the one of the inmates is blowing kisses at Alex and winking and, you know, being very suggestive. Yeah. So in the book, he murders that guy. <laughs> Basically. Well, you, you'll, you're right, you, you'll note that in the scenes where he's fighting his own gang, in the scene with the women, all these scenes, you hear beautiful classic music in the background. So it's kind of like uh, foreshadowing what would eventually be turned on him, which is the same thing. Now, he doesn't want this beautiful music being played uh, while he's watching violent imagery and then um, getting sick himself later on when he has to, when he has uh, been successfully treated. The, the, the one I was kind of saving for last, because I guess this one has the most weight, is um, when he goes home and... Uh, rapes the, the writer's uh, wife and cripples him, I guess. Right. Um, so in the movie later, it's like, oh, she eventually died of pneumonia or something. In the book, it's clearly like she died as a result of the rape. And more importantly, the book that the author is writing that's on his table is entitled A Clockwork Orange. That's correct. Which is there when he comes back. That's how he realizes he's in the house again. He sees the Clockwork Orange book again. Okay. Which I don't see why they left that out of the movie. Come on. I mean, <laughs> but that was another one oh, by him not being actually respons directly responsible for her death. Because again, in the book, he's murdered three people and the movie's murdered so, one. So just for a little chronology. So yes, they, they do that. Um, then they kill the, they murder the cat lady. Then he ends up in prison. Then he gets beat up by the cop droops. And then he's so, uh, he's distraught, it's raining. He's been beat up and he just stumbles into this house asking for help. And it turns out to be the house of the people that they, uh, they home, home. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And now, what the notes say is moral. Don't get stuck uh, on singing one song in the bath, especially um, if it's not the one you sing when raping. So because the the husband, the guy, the author, the bleeding heart, you know, who ends up record realizing, okay, so the drugs used to wear masks when they committed these acts. Okay, so he thought that he was safe, but when the guys hear, hears them singing, singing in the rain, he realizes, oh, this is the guy that attacked us because as they attacked him, I recognized it. So, uh, yeah, interestingly enough, so he, the author is opposed to the way the government had treated Alex, even whilst recognizing this guy is the one who ends up basically murdering or causing the death of my wife. So having uh, read the newspapers about what had, was, was happening to Alex, while Alex is staying in his house rehabilitating, he uh, bla he's blasting, the author is blasting Beethoven into Alex's room, which makes Alex uh, get all sickly. And that's how he ends up attempting to commit suicide. He jumps out the window because of that. He can't get away from the sound and he just takes a dive out the window. 
Also of note is um, in World War II, apparently Burris's wife at the time was home invaded. Oh wow! So that's why the husband's a writer with the clockwork orange on the table um this was actually unfortunately based on episodes from his life wow so um and I, also the notes state uh, austin or julian or whatever had some muscles because now the author's living alone but he has this uh, i guess home companion bodyguard guy and that is how i i learned that british bodybuilders work out in red speedos yeah. <laughs> How about yeah. you? Yeah, that was yeah. good to know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to get some more swole here. Yeah, the Victorian <laughs> strongman thing. That's what I go for, just the leotard. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, we at least went around brightened the corners going around the, the MK Ultra and the free will. Are, are there any major hit points that we have not hit? What, specifically on that or just Just in general? general. That could be that or a general question, Yeah. <laughs> To me, one of the scenes that stands out is once Alex is essentially in a body cast, right, failing suicide, but he jumped out a window, so he's all smashed up. And then the minister, well, the government personnel, whatever he was, uh, is apologizing to him on behalf of the government. But Alex has to eat his little meal, so this government minister is literally feeding him like a baby, and that look on Alex's face is the most smug thing you could ever imagine, you know? He's just opening his mouth like, oh, come on in, you know? You're feeding me like a baby now. And it was so, so smug. <laughs> well, he was getting away with it in the movie, so a little, yeah. little yeah. different than the book, I guess. <laughs> right. um, yeah, and yeah, of course, The Simpsons has so many clockwork references with Bart Simpson. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Reaching up for the two cakes. And yeah, talking about the pain as Gulliver. Yeah. <laughs> Gulliver. Yeah, some of those terms were interesting. Like uh, he referred to his eyeballs as what? Glassy warbles. I don't even know. Um, oh, yeah, I remember um, the uh, guy from the band XTC put out all his demos under the name Fuzzy Warbles several years ago. Oh, back. that's what yeah. <laughs> And then. Um, he used a certain term for the toast and and steak that the the guy that was now living with P and M was eating, um, eggy wakes of toast or something like that, and steaky wake. So some of it isn't even Russian; it's just weird, weird um, slang. Yeah, that's just what how you, we talk. What are you going to call your breakfast? Um, but eggs and soldiers. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> just a standard thing for us. There we go. No, that's, um, what are but, the soldiers? Is it yeah, so oh, it's, it's a boiled egg, and then you slice the toast into little things you can dip. Oh, very good. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> I was trying to explain um, Cockney rhyming slang to a Japanese girl at the weekend, and she's just like, she thought I was going insane. <laughs> oh, you say we don't say the word; we say half of a phrase, which the end would have rhymed with the word. <laughs> Not a look, it's a butcher's, you know, butcher's hook. <laughs> they're not the stairs, they're the apples, you know, apples and pears. Wow. How do you wow, keep up wow. with this? Wow. <laughs> well, you don't, unless you live in London. <laughs> there's your next podcast. You just do that for an hour at a time. Well, there's the scene in um, Austin Powers, where Austin <laughs> and his dad English. talk English, English. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He's like, yeah, I can re I can watch that scene without subtitles. I know what they're on about. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I did want to throw away, throw away, throw out. Um, I, I might have even mentioned on the podcast. Just I find it so amusing. I think it was an MK Ultra operation, which is the uh, Operation Midnight Climax. Climax. I've definitely heard of that. Yeah, one. in the Nevada whorehouses, they'd uh, dose middle-aged men and I guess film them or whatever. No, they'd sit behind a two-way mirror and watch. Oh, right, right on a little right. porta potty, so they wouldn't have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> they probably film as well. <laughs> I just, that's my favorite operation name of all time. <laughs> oh, oh, that's your controller. Okay. You're, you're smashing up my apartment I'm today. smashing up his apartment today. <laughs> I, I, killed, I killed the Zelda boss. I beat the boss. Yeah, I fell off my <laughs> shelf with your ass. <laughs> and, um... Obviously, this film is holding up pretty well, but I don't know if it's often watched. <laughs> it's it's definitely a film you have to watch once you, because you, cinema, in terms of cinematography, it's very impressive. It does. It is like a very raw look at just juvenile delinquency, but it's all it's a film that I can't tell you I love because it's so pessimistic, hmm. and I'm. I'm so diametrically opposed to every part of its worldview. <laughs> like, <laughs> both in terms of Alex, who is supposed to be a boring, but and also just the world around him's reaction. Like, mm. this film seems to be anti-rehabilitation. Well, Kubrick is a pretty sarcastic dude at base. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I honestly... Nihilistic dude at He's base. one of those, you can't actually tell what his genuine beliefs are from watching one of his films. <laughs> yeah, so. but... You'd have to be a sociopath for this to be your, like, you know, regular watch. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like uh, you said, it's it's entirely told from Alex's perspective. Mm. So his perspective is nihilism, therefore uh, ultraviolence and uh, sex and going right back to it. And especially like we already said in the movie, it's especially like that because he's not rehabilitated whatsoever, not by the government, not by him, his own self. Mm. And then, yeah, that makes that. I do find it very fascinating that you can read the book with that last chapter or without. Because I actually read it, I was like, oh, I'm going to stop because the, the vibe I got in is you should probably skip it. But then I read it, I was like, oh, no, this really does need to be here. I think, huh. I think the American publisher who cut it, because he was like, you can cut it or not cut it. The British kept it in. Okay. The, the American publisher was like, oh, it makes the ending too British. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> How do you respond to that? I mean, wait, so the ending is that he just decides to get on with his life and be a good bloke? Yeah. I don't know how British that is. <laughs> Although, yeah, I guess it is very British that you just, you go through an awful phase in your teens. <laughs> and then you just, you just sort well, it out. Like, you know, <laughs> according to Pink Floyd, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. Yeah. <laughs> But he's well. He's about. He's probably going to get married, become an accountant himself, and yeah, repress repress everything that he actually enjoys in life. So yeah, that's very British. Yeah, I mean, he might not enjoy Beethoven in a few years just because yeah. <laughs> he'll be listening to his own fuzzy warbles. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, I'm sorry. I meant to say it was singing. Yeah, it's weird. I, I actually do love classical. I hate opera. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I can I've, handle classical more than I can handle opera. I've never sat and watched an opera in my 
head. I have. Opera is just like what happens in the background during Bond films. <laughs> <laughs> no, I um I went on a trip to Europe when I was a teenager. They made us watch two operas there. One of them was in the Vienna Stadt Opera House, which is the one in Amadeus. So, yeah. that, that, I mean, even though I don't like opera, it's like the best orchestra in the world and the best hall in the world. So, sure. Um, and then um, my wife's friend, when we were living in America several years back, was... Um, she was a professional singer and said, oh, I'm in this production of Madam Butterfly. It was a professional performance, but basically she didn't actually sing. I was like, well, we had to sit around for three hours of opera just to watch her be dead on the ground. Because that was her role. She was one of the, the dead handmaidens at the end of Madam Butterfly. Well, this is like, I get to say to people that I once played Romeo on stage, but I actually played Romeo's corpse in a mor in a mortuary in a sequel to Romeo and Juliet that we were performing. <laughs> Still okay, hard. just lay there. Okay, don't move. Yeah. Okay, good, it. great, fantastic. <laughs> applause, applause. Yeah, I, I guess Kubrick has so much of a leg legacy, you can kind of leave this one on the back burner for the most part. But again, one of the best soundtracks, one of the best lead performances ever. So it certainly, you know, it's not lacking, though I'm going to watch 2001 and or the first half of Full Metal Jacket, which is also pretty bleak, but funnier, I guess. <laughs> I think the next Shining I'm going to watch is Next. The next, yeah, the answer, oh, the yeah. next Kubrick I'll probably watch is The Shining <laughs> because I'm in a bit of a Stephen King kick. But yeah, yeah, I'm very glad I watched this film. I could very happily never watch it again. <laughs> and Agreed. I'm not, in terms of the actual on-screen violence, like I said, I'm desensitized to that. It's the, the attitude of the character doing this violence. Like I've seen some horrific violence in a movie, but I'm like, yeah, but this guy's fighting to save the day and they were bad guys, so I don't care. <laughs> Whereas this is just a dude beating people up for shits and giggles. Yeah. And it's fucking horrible. <laughs> um, I, I guess we're winding down a little, but um, Ken, I know you've written some some books sort of in this wheelhouse, not this movie in particular, maybe, but uh, with, the, with the mind control, do you have any particulars that people might want to follow up with? Uh, I've also written some uh, movie review books. Well, yeah, those is why, but I had the impression that I uh, sort of foisted this one on you. So, <laughs> but what oh, are, yeah. what are uh, a few of those folks might want to follow up with? Um, well, the movie review books, one reviews uh, Stephen King's It, but that's actually a review of the novel and the miniseries and both movies. And another one, it reviews the entire uh, Aliens and the Predator franchises together, including the crossovers. Then another one's called Transhuman Hollywood, and that just has a slew of movies that contain transhumanist aspects. But as far as the, um, I don't think I've written any books that focus on mind control experimentation, but maybe touch lightly upon it. Um, I think I'd been through one of your uh, uh, celebrity ones with those those ideas, which was yes, fun. yes, that was uh, well. I wrote a series of books called the Necronomicon Job. So one of them does with deal, yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of them does deal with the celebrity culture, and it, you know, I don't know, even just taking them at their own word, it does seem like they have experienced some level of some sort of uh, mind control in in various forms. I'm really interested to see what celebrity culture looks like the other side of the pandemic. 
because everyone's really fed up with the celebrities now <laughs> after like the imagine video and all that shit <laughs> everyone's fed up of people in mansions telling us that we should be happy to stay in our homes so. thank you yeah i'm finding it more and more annoying and now they're having like uh celebrity game shows and and you get to watch celebrities watching some show i mean it's just it's... oh that's that's huge in japan every show whatever the show is also has a little corner box out where some celebrities watching it yeah oh man i hated that when that started like reaction videos basically yeah yeah, yeah. yeah like I can't here's... stand reaction videos here's it's, how you should feel about seeing this <laughs> to me reaction videos are just one step above unboxing videos <laughs> no no, no. I, I did do a reaction video once where the whole the whole joke was that I'm just like. <laughs> <laughs> that that is one thing on Japanese TV. Whenever I, I I keep telling my wife they must have class in Tokyo where you learn how to eat things on television. Because <laughs> they'll take just twelve bites and completely flipping out. So. Oichi. <laughs> <laughs> I just gonna, not no not no it has to be much stronger than that they have yeah. to like oh. make the whole motion of their whole body oh. and yeah it's it's pretty funny but um sorry, for, <laughs> for your folks can you can you give uh, your website for folks again well thank you yes it's truefreethinker.com all one word truefreethinker and that's a good place to start I I think I saw in there that people can kind of like uh barter with you a bit on the on which books and could do that rather <laughs> yeah. than amazon <laughs> yes i mean amazon is good for getting out there but it's not great in terms of uh paying the authors so sure if you buy directly from independent authors that's always best now one of our regular guests um you know he's a filmmaker and he got a bunch of his films on Amazon, but once Prime started you know, making their own content and stuff, they all got to mm. kind of shoot it on out. So it is good to have your own, um, you know, home point as well. So yes. <laughs> don't, well, we, we know what you want to do with Jeff Bezos anyway. Yeah, yeah. As I say, every time he comes up to all of our listeners out there, if you ever meet Jeff Bezos in the street, do punch him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's where maybe a bit of the ultraviolence is warranted. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, or not. <laughs> I don't want to punch anybody. But <laughs> no, you should, no, uh, jokes aside, though, you should definitely punch Jeff Bezos. In the face. <laughs> Just him, only him. <laughs> uh, any billionaire. Okay. <laughs> you can get close enough. And I, I did the, what is it? The Bill Gates pie in the face. That was fun. <laughs> but uh, Luke. I guess I'll ask you to do. I actually got through the letters when I was recording my other podcast earlier. So I got through the letters normally, but uh, I'm going to leave them to you anyway. You can find our podcast on Twitter at MLSFS Pod. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Apple Podcasts. Just search Matt and Luke Sci Fi Sanctuary. And if you want to hear more of this podcast, more of our other podcasts, or throw us a dollar, you can find us at patreon.com slash podcastio podcastius. And if you like the music you heard in this episode, you can find more of Matt's music at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com. I really was going to try and like play some stuff on a mode, but it like classical, but it seemed too difficult. Like okay. I could do it on a cello, but not on a keyboard. <laughs> so, but I can I, leave you with, with clockwork clock orange. <laughs> wow. I have to put that at the beginning instead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I might do that. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, Ken, as, as last time, it's very cool to hear your perspectives and things on this. And, uh, good way to get down deep into films that have something to say, even if they're not necessarily a pleasant view. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I definitely enjoyed this a lot more than watching this movie again. <laughs> <laughs> That's sometimes how it works. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you cello vex can go video a bit of the... Uh, God, that, see, I didn't learn the, the slang well enough. Where are we going to video? Oh, yeah. Out the old apples and pears. Okay. There, that's good. <laughs> All you cello vex video out the, the apples and pears. That doesn't even make sense. That, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like comparing apples and pears. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you don't do apples and oranges? And... Well, oranges doesn't rhyme with stairs. Oh, good point. Okay. That's a, that was a good <laughs> song, apples and oranges. <laughs> Monster Hunter. Monster Hunter.